Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So for our hot question of the day today, we're going to stick with the big story, and that is this whole transit strike labor disruption that we have been dealing with now since November the 1st. So we just had the press conference from Unifor's Gavin McGarrigal talking about the next steps in this dispute. And there are there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is they said, fine, yes, we will go back to the table. The company has been very aggressive on this message. Every time we've spoken to Coast Mountain Bus Company, every time they have been in the media, their message has been the same. Let's get back to the table. So now Unifor is saying, yes, we will get back to the table. They said they're willing to negotiate on Wednesday, but if they don't actually hear a difference, if they don't actually, according to them, hear a willingness to, you know, change a few things and negotiate, then they said on Friday they're going to escalate their job action and have a no overtime uh, rule for bus drivers on Friday. So that's just on Friday. So given what we have seen, the way these two sides have kind of been interacting over the last couple of weeks, and it's all played out right in front of us, right? So I think we're all now at this point pretty familiar with what's been going on in this dispute. So we want to get your take for our hot question of the day today. We want to know, are you confident that the two sides can actually resolve their dispute, do you think, this week? Do you think, yeah, they're going to find a way? There's a willingness there, they're going to find a way, or do you think, no, they are just too far apart? What's your take on what you've seen and heard so far in this labor dispute? So check that out for our hot question of the day. You can go online to at CKNW or at Sarah 980 to cast your vote on this. You can also give us your assessment by giving us a call on our buzz line, 604-331-2899, and let us know what you're thinking about that. Or you can also drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. Uh, lots of people, lots of bus drivers in particular have been emailing about this. Uh, I know there is a lot of public discussion about this. So weigh in with your thoughts. Do you think these two sides are going to find a way and make a deal this week? Or do you, from everything you've heard, do you think they're just too far apart? We are talking this morning about the transit strike and how it could continue to impact you. And it sounds like potentially uh, escalate the impact on you at the end of this week if tomorrow doesn't go well. As we just heard, the union representing bus drivers and CBUS operators and others says it is prepared to return to the bargaining table with Coast Mountain Bus Company, and that would be tomorrow, Wednesday morning. Unifor spokesperson Gavin McGarrigal says, though, the union is also serving notice that if they get to that table, it doesn't go well. If they don't think that Coast Mountain is serious about settling this thing, then job action will be escalated on Friday. Now, he just made this announcement about 20 minutes ago, and here's what he told reporters. Although we remain deeply skeptical of their motives and still believe they are not serious about addressing the key issues, a few moments ago, I contacted their chief negotiator with news that the union is prepared to return to the bargaining table beginning Wednesday morning to discuss all outstanding issues in this dispute. We will see whether or not the company is serious about achieving a resolution to this dispute, and if they are, bargaining can be wrapped up in a matter of hours. We are also serving notice today that if the company is not serious and continues to avoid a fair collective agreement on all issues, we will escalate job action beginning this Friday. All drivers are now being instructed to stop accepting overtime for all shifts that occur this Friday, November 15th, if a fair agreement is not reached before then. We will also consider additional days next week and in the weeks to come where drivers will join with maintenance workers on the overtime ban. Ultimately, disruption will continue to escalate until a full strike will occur. Okay, so for now, though, they are saying Friday will be a day where there will be uh, no overtime for bus drivers. And right now it's just Friday, provided things tomorrow don't go well. Gavin McGarrigal also told reporters at that press conference that the union knows that bargaining requires compromise. And we are prepared to work very hard to reach a fair agreement and sincerely hope the company is not playing games when they ask us to return to the table. Our members are determined to have these issues addressed. We know that bargaining requires compromise, 
but we also know that these issues are not going away unless they are addressed in this round of bargaining. Our members have told us if we can't deal with these issues in the middle of one of the largest transit expansions in, de in decades, expansions that of course we firmly support, then when can we deal with this? The ball is now in the company's court. Come back to the bargaining table as you say you want to. Address the outstanding issues and bargain a fair agreement for your workers so that we can avoid an escalation of the job action this Friday. Ah, uh, yes, but of course we can't forget that there is quite a lot of bitterness uh, on the two sides in the two sides here for this dispute. He also described the treatment of workers by TransLink as the company's quote dirty little secret. TransLink was awarded the 2019 Outstanding Public Transportation System Achievement Award, and a large part of that this year was on-time service performed by our members every day. Despite raising compensation, accepting awards, and bragging about expansion with shiny capital projects, TransLink has a dirty little secret. It doesn't treat its workers fairly. As you can tell, a lot of work to do tomorrow. Now, we have heard, our Keith Baldry is reporting as well, that the Coast Mountain Bus Company has responded to Unifor on this, and talks will indeed resume on Wednesday morning. We'll have more details for you just ahead. But we also wanted to talk today about the impact that the job action, even so far, has been having on people out there. And there's one group that will definitely be impacted by any escalation and strike action, and that's seniors. Care providers are now voicing their concern about about the impact of those receiving home care and home support services. To talk more about that, we're joined by Daniel Fontaine, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Daniel, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Timmy. Do you say, do you feel more optimistic after hearing that those latest developments in the last half hour? Uh, for sure, we always uh, we're very optimistic that you know whenever two parties are sitting at the table and can you know have a negotiation that we're hopeful that they'll come to an agreement. But we're also realistic and. Uh, we know that uh, there is a lot of acrimony on the two uh, sides of the two parties at the moment, and we are extremely nervous about what could start happening as early as this Friday with a reduction in the bus system of, uh, I think it's estimated to be up to 15%. And that would have uh, already, even at that level, would start impacting the ability for care providers to be able to make it to the homes of, of many thousands of seniors within the Metro Vancouver area who rely essentially as an essential service for them uh, each and every day. And many of those workers, they rely on public transit to get to and from um, the homes of the various seniors and, and uh, older adults that require their, their care. So while I'm hopeful, um, I'm also a realist that, uh, and, and figure that there could be a chance that later this week uh, this will be ramped up. Is that something that has changed, do you think, in the 18 years since the last labour dispute that we are seeing more home care, more care providers doing this job? Yeah, so two things have happened. So one is the demographic bubble has kind of, uh, as we've all been talking about for the last couple of decades, there are now way more seniors than there were 18, 19 years ago when the, the big four-month strike happened. And also, um, there's a lot more people kind of using that home care services as well. Um, transit ridership is up. A lot of the workers that work as home care providers and home support workers use public transit to get to and from appointments. So all of those factors, um, you know, it, a couple decades after the big strike um, have changed. And that's why we raised the red flag this morning to say, hey, um, just a minute here, there are going to be some very vulnerable people and populations that are going to be impacted by this strike and are encouraging both the parties, as we see them going back tomorrow, to to get a deal uh, in order that, uh, you know, these seniors and others are not impacted by by a, a, a lack of bus service. Hey, is this something that you have been hearing then from people who are care providers or people who need this service? Absolutely. And that's what triggered our, our statement this morning. So we started hearing late last week that there um, was concern and in terms of getting prepared and, and, you know, looking for alternatives, Simi, it's not like there's just a, an alternative out there. Like if you don't use the, the public transit... Yeah. Um, there are things like Evo and for sure car to go and taxis and that kind of stuff. But you, as you can imagine, um, caregivers are going to be um, fighting for those uh, amongst the general population. We're going to be trying to access that. So it's not like um, there really is a, a plan B or a plan C that these workers can suddenly, uh, you know, find a vehicle or many of them don't necessarily have driver's licenses. They don't have vehicles. They rely on public transit to provide seniors with those home care services. And we're talking about medication management, getting people in and out of bed uh, in the morning and at night, um, 
um, assisting them with the basic activities of daily living. This is not something like getting late for a, an appointment or you know having to figure out how to carpool to university. It's it's quite a, a serious matter, and that's why we're encouraging both the parties to come to a deal as as soon as possible. I was wondering about that though. You kind of touched on it there. Are there any backup plans? Is there anything that can be done to help? I mean, I guess all the locations are different. Yeah, I wish I could tell you they are all different, and I wish I could tell you that um, there is a you know an alternate plan where there'll be no disruption of services. But I'm out here on the airwaves today to tell the public and seniors and their families that they should be concerned, and we should be encouraging both the sides to sit down to think long and hard about uh, pulling buses off the road because it's not simply just going to be a bus off the road. It's going to have uh, impact to, to seniors and people who require home care services. And and there's not a, an alternate plan out there to suddenly have a, an alternate bus service kind of start bringing the workers around to and from, from homes. And, you know, Simi, we, I think you and I have talked about this. We've really had a push to keep people at home, like people yeah. like allow seniors to live at home. People want to live at home. We kind of owe it to them if they're going to stay at home longer and they're going to be at home staying in that single family residence, we owe it to kind of make sure that things like public transit are out there so that they can actually get access to their care workers. Otherwise, they're going to lose confidence in that system, you know, moving forward. Are you worried about what might happen on Friday? I am. I am. I am worried. Um, you know, I'm, I'm worried about uh, the, the, our members, our operators who are busy right now trying to figure out how they're going to have a contingency plan when this potentially the strike hits as early as Friday. I'm worried about the seniors. Uh, I know that for them and their families and, and many um, non-seniors as well who require yeah. assistance from care aids. It's a very stressful thing to to lose a care aid, even if it's for a day or two. And uh, you can only put yourself in their situation that if there looks like there's a bus strike coming and it looks like it could reduce the amount of carry, it's, it's an extremely stressful time for families and for um, the individuals that receive the service. So I am worried and I'm hoping that uh, this doesn't come to pass, but if it does, uh, I'm alerting the public that there are going to be some fairly significant both financial impacts and also care impacts to the, to the seniors. All right, Daniel, thanks for your time on this. Thanks for having me on. That's Daniel Fontaine, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Let's talk about gas prices, always a hot topic. We've learned in the last hour that the BC Utilities Commission has released a follow-up report on that whole price inquiry they did into gasoline prices in our province. So the BCUC was actually given an extension to try to gather more feedback and really more explanations to try to figure out what the deal was with this unexplained 13 cent per liter markup when it comes to Metro Vancouver gas prices. So what did they find out? Will this help you when it goes time to fill up at the pump? Well, David Morton joins us now, the chair of the BC Utilities Commission, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. So what was the point then of doing this? Was it because you still had questions after the initial report? Um, as you know, in the initial report, we um, we did an analysis of both the wholesale and the retail market. And um, in the wholesale market, we found uh, an unexplained difference of $0.13 cents a litre. Um, and that was based on the price that was being used uh, as the uh, price for gasoline in BC, which was the Pacific Northwest spot price, and the actual price that was being charged at the wholesale level. We wanted to give... Uh, the participants, the oil companies, the opportunity uh, to explain uh, what that 13 cent difference was, and that was uh, that was one of the reasons we asked uh, or recommended to government that there be a 30-day comment period. Okay, and so what happened during that 30-day comment period? Um, there's five participants, uh, uh, interveners that participated in the comment period, and uh, I'd like to thank them for their participation. At the wholesale level, there was uh, Imperial Oil. Um, Suncor and Advanced Biofuels uh, and Parkland. And uh, they all uh, provided uh, evidence um, that would explain some of the 13, uh, that attempted to explain some of the 13 cent difference. The panel reviewed the evidence that uh, was brought forward and we found it to be inconclusive and uh, at times contradictory. There were some parties saying one thing, other parties saying the other. And given the time that was uh, uh, that, that, that was allotted for the comment period, um, we, we really were not able to um, make an, any definitive uh, determination. So we 
we did not make a change to the 13 cent uh, differential, although uh, we did acknowledge that um, should uh, some of that information, uh, if it were correct, um, the differential could be in the range of 10 to 13 cents. Right. So then, David, were some companies, were they just unable to explain why then their prices are so much higher? Like, Or did everybody provide some kind of explanation? Um, there was some explanation. Uh, a lot of the companies uh, are reluctant to uh, provide uh, data regarding their own, their own operations. So there was a lot of, um, uh, I'll call it uh, representative data or sample data. Um, and uh, n- nobody came along with an invoice and said, well, look, this is what I've paid for it, and this is what it cost me to get it here, and this is what it costs to do this and costs to do that. Um, so we didn't have anything really definitive um, on which to base our analysis. Right. So you're saying all these companies that sell gas here, nobody could give you a simple list of this is why we charge the price that we charge? Nobody did that, No. And is that even after you factor in the taxation issue? Um, as you probably know, uh, we did not factor in the taxation issue. We looked at all prices ex tax. Uh, most of the taxes are applied at the retail level, but even then, when we looked at the retail prices, we didn't. Um, we, we looked at the price um, net of tax. And uh, when we're talking about this 13 cents, this doesn't uh, taxes don't affect that at all. Right. So because the taxation level would be the same for all of them, right? Correct. Correct. So if you take it out, it's still the same price. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And it's important uh, comparing to other jurisdictions, as we did. There's different tax reg- regimes in different jurisdictions. So the only really the only way to do that kind of comparison is net of tax. So what were some of the explanations that you got for this? Uh, some of the explanations were that we there were certain costs that we had not included, uh, but again. Um, they, uh, they they were not definitive, and there was no there was no concrete evidence of those costs. And and um, the panel even questioned whether whether it was appropriate to include those costs uh, because there are costs that applied to all gasoline in the province, not just gasoline that was brought in from uh, the Pacific Northwest. There was some um, conflicting evidence on the costs of uh, various additives that are added to the fuel, both for um, uh, carbon standards and, and for federal standards of anti-NOC and octane ratings and all those kinds of things. There was also some uh, um, conflicting evidence of uh, transportation costs. Uh, but again, nothing definitive and nothing that the panel, that persuaded right. the panel to, to, to make a definitive change. David, did that surprise you? I mean, in your work at the chair of the Utilities Commission, that there was no kind of coherent response that even two or three companies didn't have the same response to this? Um, yes, it, it, I, I, I was somewhat uh, somewhat surprised about that, yes. So what is it that can be done then about this? Can you compel any more information from the companies or is this the end of the road then for this? Well, as far as we at the commissioner are concerned, it, it's the end of the road for us. Our, our jurisdiction over the com- over these companies and, and over this entire domain has ended. As, uh, we don't have any um, we don't have any normal statutory jurisdiction in this area, um, and we needed the uh, we needed to be ordered by the uh, by the provincial government to do this, and we did. And then that time, now that time limit has expired. So the next steps would be up to the provincial government. So a lot of times when we talk about gas prices as well, like we've always thought anecdotally, like what is it about Metro Vancouver? Why are the prices here? So after this whole exercise, then David, we still couldn't answer that question. Well, we did make findings uh, about the wholesale about the wholesale level, and uh, about the about the wholesale part of the market, and that uh, there is a high market concentration, meaning meaning that the. Uh, a large part of the infrastructure is owned by the by the five oil companies. Uh, that it's very difficult for a competitor to enter the market, and then that coupled with the with the unexplained differential uh, did lead us to the conclusion that there was that there was market control being exercised. So, to the extent that that's that's the correct analysis, then that would explain uh, some of the higher prices. Um, at the retail on the retail side. Um, we were not able to uh, make a definitive finding. Uh, there's some question about the way that retail price data is collected, and um, 
that could be that's something that could be looked at uh, at, 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 at a better uh, data collection process so that we could come up with a better understanding of retail prices. You talked about the competitive environment, or in, in our case, in Metro Vancouver's case, is it the lack thereof of a competitive environment? At the retail, at the retail uh, end, um, we were not able to to make that finding. No, and there's all. However, there's also regional differences, uh, huge regional differences. Um, we got a, a, a lot of letters of comment. I think there was 41 in the uh, in in this supplementary period from residents in Paul River that face exceptionally high uh, retail prices. Um, I understand that there were protests in Squamish over mm-hmm. the weekend because of high prices there. So there really isn't a BC retail market. There's actually a whole bunch of re- retail markets in British Columbia. And the OIC asked us to look at the price of gasoline in British Columbia. But I think there really has to be um, there has there, there has to be a look uh, at a more regional level because it, the 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 reasons for the differences may well be different in, 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 in each region. All right. Well, David, thank you very much for your time on this. You're very welcome. Thanks for your interest. That's David Morton, chair of the BC Utilities Commission, talking about the supplementary report that was released this morning. Well, let's talk about the bill that you pay every month for your home entertainment options. There's your cable bill. There's your Netflix bill. Who knows what else there is? And right now, as of today... Sounds like there's going to be some more strain on your pocketbook thanks to Disney. We're going to talk about that now with the help of Andy Barr, who's our tech expert and contributing author at futurismic.com. Hi, Andy. Hi, Cindy. So are you signing up for Disney Plus? No, no, I'm what not. What is the matter with you? Because I am trying to get off my couch, Simi. So this is like, you know, you're going to see a lot of people binge in this weekend because this is a really highly anticipated launch. Um, and Netflix, I'd love to be in their war room right now because they're all probably like, oh, there's a new big player in town. Right. And so this is... All Disney content, for people who don't realize this, all Disney content is going to be removed from Netflix. It's not going to be there anymore. That's right. But Disney made a really smart move, and they also got content from Fox. So if you're a fan of The Simpsons, you never think The Simpsons and Disney in the same sentence, but that's how you're going to get your content now. And also, a lot of people might know this, Disney also owns ESPN+, and they have their streaming service. So it's using the same technology on the back end. They actually bought the company that make the streaming service happen just so that they could, because they understand this is the future. This is how people are getting their content. And so Disney came out big and they have a lot of titles, about 500 movies and 7,500 TV episodes at launch. It's a lot of stuff, right? So this is how competitive this has gotten, because I guess nobody wants to be the blockbuster. Nobody wants to be the company that got left behind. Yes. It's funny because if there was any company that should be here, it would have been Blockbuster, but they didn't want to change. There's that legendary story that the CEO of Netflix tells, Reed Hastings, that years ago he went into a meeting with Blockbuster executives and offered to sell Netflix to them, and they laughed him out of the room. Yes. And look who's laughing now. No kidding, right? (laughs) Exactly. Look who's laughing now. So... I guess these big entertainment companies saw how big Netflix was getting and decided, wait a minute, why are we paying somebody else or why are we putting our content somewhere else? Yes. And so you've seen like there's a lot of competition. Like for the average consumer now, if you look like there are more scripted TV shows being produced today than any time. Netflix alone this year spent $14 billion making content. But they understand. See, I went for a dinner with a bunch of Netflix executives a couple years ago. Really? And after some wine, they told me something that I'll never forget. (laughs) He said, when we, seven years ago is when they first made their original content with House of Cards. Oh, yeah. And he told me at that time, he goes, we knew it was going to be a hit even before we started production. It's their algorithm. It was their algorithm. He goes, we looked at people that like Kevin Spacey, like political dramas. So our algorithm said, if you put Kevin Spacey in a political drama, you're going to have a hit. Of course, that doesn't work anymore, right? Because we all know that's changed. But it could be somebody else. But the point is, they use the algorithm of everything that you look at on their website and their app 
to figure out what you want to watch. And then they create that content. And then they create that content. So right. it's kind of like a reverse engineering. And then they can even, they'll, they'll test. If something on Netflix is not being watched, they'll can it. And so you're seeing in the studio, everybody is negotiating. Like uh, Seinfeld, they paid $500 million, half a billion dollars to have access to Seinfeld. A show about nothing. I know. But... You know, they understand. Sure makes a lot of some things these yeah, days. Exactly. So they're losing all of the Disney content, which is big, especially if you have kids, yes. because you're, you know, they've got a lot of, now they're creating kid content because what are kids going to watch on Netflix? It, exactly. And so now what you're seeing with, you're going to see all these families now get Disney Plus because that's what people want. And just like Netflix, you're able to download it for offline viewing. So if you have a road trip with the kids, good. get some tablets, download that content, and then you'll have a nice easy ride. Isn't it ironic though that this happened, really a lot of this streaming stuff happened because people wanted more control over their bill, their monthly bill but now it feels like Andy, we're paying even more money because of all these different streaming services. Cable subscriptions looking pretty affordable now. It is! It, and so It actually is. It and it's funny how it changed because we're just talking about video streaming. Then you have your audio streaming, whether it's Spotify oh, or Apple Don't Music. Get me started. So, you know, for the average household, just, you know, get out a piece of paper and just see how much you're paying now for all of the streaming content to. on top of the internet that you're also to. paying for. I don't want to, Andy. Do it's going to hurt. Yes. I know it is going to hurt. So let's talk about what we get for this. How much is this costing us? If we, by the way, I should mention that our house signed up for this this morning, but I did cut a deal. With my daughter, she's paying for it. I pay for Netflix. She's paying for Disney+. Plus. So is that the only two streaming platforms that you have in your house? Do you um, have an Amazon Prime subscription? Yes, but that's for that's my husband because he orders a bunch of stuff off Amazon Prime all the time. So he gets that. We do have Spotify and we do have Apple Music. Oh, wow. Both streaming services. For music. Yes, I know. So I, I'm very interested to see what your household bill is. Looking. I know everybody's paying for it differently. The right? one streaming service I should mention that I do have is DAZN, and that's the streaming service for live sports. So you're seeing that whole change happen oh, right boy. now as well. And another one for for the listeners out there, if you like documentaries, there's another one called Curiosity Stream. Only four dollars a month. Only. Only four dollars a month. But it's like the Netflix of docs. Okay, but let's talk about this then, because this is what I think eight ninety nine a month. That's right, or ninety dollars a year if yes. you want to sign up. And they have, if documentaries are your thing, I noticed the National, National Geographic, Geographic channel on there, and there's some good stuff on there. Yeah, so they they're smart because they have a little bit for everything for mom, dad, and the kids all in this in this one package. So for Netflix, you're going to see, I guarantee, Simi, you'll see a lot of parents. Take away or maybe not renew their Netflix subscription, try Disney Plus and see if they can just live with that altogether. If, if my kids were young, and they're not, but they still want this, but if my kids were young, you, I don't know how you can't get this. Yeah, when you look at like what you get for what you pay for, 7,500 TV episodes and 500 movies at launch. Like this, this is just going to grow and you're going to see lots of competition, but you've got to wonder like Apple. Apple TV Plus. I'm not getting that one. I could tell you right now I'm not getting that one because there's nothing that makes it worthwhile to me. Yeah. And so you got to think a big player like Apple is struggling because you have huge players like Netflix and now Disney. Everybody is vying for our eyeballs. That's the one that I'm actually not going to get because I know they had the big launch last week because they debuted the the jewel in their crown, which was the morning show with That's Jennifer right. Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. And I kind of checked it out and thought, no, not worth it to me. That's yeah. the one I'm going to let go. And what was funny is they make it for, they're now doing that if you buy a new Apple device, you get a subscription for free. So they're trying to lure people into that you know, and this is Apple. You wouldn't have to do this a couple of years ago, but there's so much competition. So content is king. So what other content is on this Disney Plus? It is all of the Marvel movies. Yes, that doesn't tempt you. Uh, no, it's all of the Star Wars movies. Star Andy. Wars, yeah, that that one is. You know, you know what I'm watching tonight. I told you before we started. That's right. I'm watching The Mandalorian, which is the TV show that they've put on there that John Favreau did. It looks amazing. Come on, get your popcorn ready, Simmy. <laughs> I'll just have to tell you how good it is, right? I'm going to stick to YouTube and how-to videos, you know, because I want to learn how to, like, make new uh, dishes in the kitchen. So typically when I'm cooking, I always have a tablet out there and I'm just watching somebody cook. 
and I just follow them. Don't you ever get tired of watching how-to videos? Because then then you feel like you have to be doing something all the time? Hey, they call me Handy Andy for a reason, because I learned everything off YouTube. (laughs) Wow. So that's it for you. That's all you need. That's all I need, yes. And YouTube's smart. They have that algorithm where they just autoplay, and so you get stuck into the vortex of streaming. Fall down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So at your house then, how many subscriptions do you have? I have three currently. So DAZN, Netflix, and the Curiosity Stream. Have you? Are you at the top end of the Netflix one? Because that's the other thing. They get you originally with yes. the nine ninety nine, but now it turns out when I went and checked, somehow I've been upgraded over and over and over again. Fourteen ninety nine. Yeah. Yeah. So here's one thing I can tell you right now: with the launch of Disney Plus, you, I predict that you Netflix will not increase their prices right now because there's a lot of competition. This is basic economics of supply and demand. There's a lot of competition out there, so they're going to compete competitively, even though they're still spending four. $14 billion in original content. Do you think uh, people will sign up for Disney Plus? Absolutely. Uh, they actually had some glitches because people are all trying to get onto the platform at the same time. So they've had a couple of hiccups. But like I said, if you have a family and you have young children, it's kind of like a no brainer to get this because Netflix isn't looking really good right now for kids' content. You know, the other thing I noticed as well is that we're lucky here in Canada because in the States, there's even more streaming services, right? There's like HBO Max, there's Hulu, there's that CBS All Access. And NBC is also going to be launching a streaming service called Peacock. So it is competitive out there. But, you know, when it comes to, and what's really interesting is it's on multi-platform. So there's different ways to get it, whether it's on your phone, on your gaming console. Yes. Um, Roku is probably the most popular one for a lot of people who are trying to cut the cord. For about $40, you can turn your old television into a smart TV with a controller and have access to. But that's just cable. But you know what they've done? You know what, you know what Roku has done is they created the Roku channel and then they have just commercials now. So you don't even have to pay a monthly fee. You just got to watch commercials. So everything is going I'm just, full circle. You know what? I just want my cable back. That's what I want. I, I want to go all cable. I want everything to be available and cable and not have to worry about any of this stuff anymore. I know. It's getting really confusing. <laughs> There's a lot of different apps out there. And like I said, for the average uh, listener out there, just try to add up how much you're paying for all these streaming services. It's going to be more than the average cable bill, which is $75 for, the, for Canadian households. And I'm still paying that too. Yes. <laughs> right? So that's the thing where it gets us. We talk about not having money, that we feel like we're being nickel and dimed. It's all of these little things that really add up for us. Yes. I think for like most households, you need to have like an entertainment budget and then work within that budget. Otherwise, it can get out of control. You're right. And, I'm going to go home and do this and I'm going to start cutting some stuff off today. But not my Disney Plus because I'm going to watch that tonight. Because uh, your daughter's paying for it. <laughs> yeah, sorry, right. I'm not paying for that. Andy, thank you so my much for your time on that. That's Andy Barr talking about your home entertainment budget. I don't know if you want to go do what he did, though, was actually add up everything you're subscribing to and paying for. Because now, today, big launch of Disney Plus here in Canada. Now, is this something that you're going to be interested in? Will you subscribe to this? Let me know. Send me at cknw.com. Let's talk about superbugs. Yeah, superbugs. They are likely to kill nearly 400,000 Canadians and cost the economy hundreds of billions of dollars in gross domestic product over the next 30 years. Those very stark and very scary numbers come from a recently released landmark report. It's an expert panel, and the report is called When Antibiotics Fail, the Growing Cost of Antimicrobial Resistance in Canada. And it says that the percentage of bacterial infections that are now resistant to treatment is likely to grow from the 26% that we had in 2018 to 40% by the year 2050. That is what's expected to cost Canada hundreds of thousands of lives, uh, more than $120 billion in hospital expenses and $388 billion in gross domestic product over the next three decades. So of course that begs the question, what are we doing about it? Let's talk more about this report now. Dr. John Conley joins us, an infectious diseases physician and a member of the expert panel that authored this report. Dr. Conley, thank you for being here. Well, thank you. These are some very scary numbers in here. Uh, absolutely. I think I liken this to a, um, a tsunami that's far out at sea, but it's going to be uh, landing on the shores much sooner than climate change. And I think this is a... Uh, 
a fairly significant wake-up call for the general population and for our federal, provincial, territorial governments. Uh, and I wanted to just uh, state that this report, unlike other reports, uh, is very specific w- with respect to Canadian data. There have been other reports on superbugs and antibiotic resistance, but this particular report um, was honed to with a fine-tooth comb to look specifically at resistance to first-line antibiotic agents, the trajectory of uh, where we've been and where we've come to to this point in time, where we think we're going to go, uh, and we think it's a very realistic report. And then uh, the uh, economic evaluation uh, was used um, to be able to, with a very sophisticated model, to look at what is the impact on the uh, gross domestic product uh, to the economy in terms of lost dollars. What are superbugs, Dr. Conley? So superbugs we can define as um, uh, germs or microbes that are resistant to the commonly used uh, antibiotics. We often classify them as being resistant to uh, two or more uh, commonly used agents. And then we can move on to... um, pan-resistant, where they're resistant to quite a large number in a panel, or to totally drug-resistant uh, uh, bacteria, which are even more worrisome. And how do we end up with superbugs? You know, uh, it's a complex uh, issue, but uh, and I wanted to just say that it has to be looked at from the perspective of a One Health lens. So what is One Health? One Health is the intricate uh, interplay between human health, food animal health, and the environmental health. So, because if you think of antibiotics being overused in any of those sectors, you get you know spraying of crops, you get spillage into the environment, you use them in humans, and overuse of antibiotics, antibiotic impregnated toys, face cloths, dish liquid, uh, all of that is spilling far too many antibiotics into the um, system, and then those resistance uh, gene determinants are getting into these microbes, causing antibiotic resistant infections. Now we've been warned about this for what more than 20 years. Have we gotten better? I know that 20 years ago the problem was, you know, we went to our doctor for a cold and we expected to get a prescription for that. Have have we gotten better at like lowering those expectations? Uh slightly, but oh. there is much more work to be done. And I think what this uh report does, this panel's report provides uh, a very accurate and precise picture of where we're at where we're going, and for the first time started to attach some actual numbers to it in terms of attributable mortality and the economic burden. And that's what's different about this report than other things that we've seen in the last 20 years. Right. So then do you feel like we're still, we still expect that? Like we're going to the doctor, we have something wrong with us, we expect to leave with that piece of paper with a prescription? Unfortunately, uh, in many cases, uh, that, that occurs. But I want to emphasize that it's not just the doctor's office we're looking at this and the panel's report is looking at food production animals, veterinary prescribing, and as well as uh, use of antibiotics that are spilling off into the environment. I think that's a key component that we need to take into consideration, not just going to the doctors and getting an antibiotic for a cold. And what about research into getting more drugs and stronger drugs? Are we not doing that? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I think we need to look past that. And if you look in the panel report, there's a great deal of um, emphasis on research and innovation. And uh, Canada is a very innovative country, uh, full of innovative people. Uh, it's not just new agents, but we need to look at alternatives to antibiotics. Can we manipulate the microbiome to get better health through that mechanism? Are there other things that can be done in terms of better hand hygiene and things that are not necessarily new antibiotic solutions, better diagnostic tests, earlier diagnosis, all of those things uh, come into play, and we need much more uh, innovation in those strategies uh, in addition to just, well, let's just get another new antibiotic. Because I think we've realized uh, these are living, breathing, biologic um, organisms. Uh, they're going to pick up resistance genes. So we've, we've got to come up with other innovative strategies. The, the class of drugs that we mainly still use to fight infections, is this the same kind of class of antibiotics that were discovered decades and decades ago? Yes, there's been very few actually new uh, families or classes of antibiotics that have come to the market in the last uh, 20 years. And that, that, that's part of it. And if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, um, there's much more money to be made in drugs that can be taken for a lifetime. You think of you know, blood pressure or diabetic medications as opposed to antibiotics that are a short course therapy. So some incentivization for new antibiotics. But again, I want to emphasize there are many other alternatives to antibiotics 
biotics that need to be looked at. And that's where the innovation uh, uh, capsule lies. So if we don't do this then, Dr. Conley, what kind of illnesses are we talking about that could lead to bigger problems? Is it some very basic things that you could end up not having a treatment for? Uh, Absolutely. And we're seeing in some parts of the world, um, and you've probably heard about some of the medical tourism, people going to uh, Middle East, uh, the Indian subcontinent, the Far East, Latin, South America, they're getting uh, hips, knees done, uh, they're getting uh, uh, transplanted organs, and then they're bringing back uh, very drug-resistant organisms because there are some jurisdictions in the world where uh, there are no controls uh, with respect to uh, antimicrobials. They just go to a store and pick up whatever they like. So, uh, yes, the, the scenario of, of uh, seeing patients where we have no treatments is uh, certainly a frightening one. So what can we do then? Like as individuals, how do we keep this in mind? How do we change our habits? So I think it's important to look at, uh, you know, do I need to buy uh, as an individual antimicrobial resistant uh, soaps, uh, dishwashing liquid, uh, impregnated toys, towels, Uh, Is that good for the environment? Um, And then uh, you need to look at, well, uh, do we need to have uh, antibiotics being used in the foodstuffs that we're uh, purchasing? Um, There is a trend now in some settings to go to antibiotic-free foods, uh, you know, raised without antibiotics. Uh, That's an important thing for the general public. And then uh, responsibility uh, rests with the individual or a family member if you're taking a child or an elderly parent is this uh, respiratory infection really a bacteria or a virus? Are there diagnostic tests that can be done? Is there an option for a wait-and-see approach? All of those need to be taken into consideration. So do we essentially, we have to be more skeptical whenever we think of the word antibiotic? Uh, I would say not skeptical, but a better uh, choice of term might be we have to think wisely think judiciously, do I actually need this antibiotic? Um, you know, is it being thrown around uh, too liberally? Um, the doctor's trying to shoo me out of the office or the nurse practitioner. And remember, it's not just physicians. In many provinces now, we have pharmacists, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, midwives, uh, even in some settings, uh, dental hygienists who are able to do uh, prescribing. So I think you need to look at the entire prescribing um, health professionals uh, and ask very good questions about whether it's absolutely necessary or not. Right, but you also talked about like even our home products. Like we have a tendency these days to want to wipe everything down, right? To make it all absolutely uh, antiseptic. Yes, but you know, uh, let's go back to good old-fashioned elbow grease and soap and water. Uh, it's the physical friction that's probably the most important and uh, making everything clean. Uh, we, we've existed for many years without that. Uh, it's not absolutely necessary to be using uh, antibiotic and antiseptic laden because again if you don't get rid of the um, physical uh, uh, elements and the protein and the other things that are left behind uh, no amount of antiseptics even going to penetrate them so no substitute for good old-fashioned elbow grease. Do you think sometimes we've we've just come to rely too much on that like oh that's the easy thing for us to do as opposed to scrubbing our hands and making sure that we're all clean? Absolutely I would say that that's part of it and we need to uh, just rethink some of the uh, basic elements. And so in some respects, it's a little bit of back to basics. Sounds good. Dr. Conley, thank you so much for that advice today. You're welcome. That is Dr. John Conley, an infectious diseases physician and a member of the expert panel that authored this report. Let's talk about the labor situation in this province. Lots of discussion about the transit strike, the two sides uh, going back to the table tomorrow in the hopes, might be faint hopes, that they can hammer out a deal and avoid an escalation in their dispute on Friday. But there's another potential labor front here that might cause us problems, and that is uh, teachers and the province. Teachers have rejected the latest recommendations from a mediator that was hired to negotiate a new contract with their employer. Let's get all of the details on this now. Joining us is Global's BC Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry. Hi, Keith. Hi, Timmy. Every time I talk to you about this, we go, yeah, but there's still this, and there's still (laughs) this to happen. Now this does not seem to bode well. No, it doesn't bode well. In fact, the mediator's report is quite discouraging. Uh, It's a 60-page report, but really, uh, of that, it's about 25 pages of recommendations for settlement. But his analysis, David Schaub is a mediator from the Labor Relations Board. His analysis and summary 
of the history of collective bargaining between the BC Teachers Federation and the government, whether it was the NDP or the BC Liberals, or now once again the NDP, is quite illuminating and quite informative, but at the end of the day, very discouraging. In fact, he says, basically, the disconnect between the parties, between the the BCTF and uh, BC Public uh, School Employers Association, which is the bargaining agency for the government, is so bad, and this is a direct quote, it is evident there is a dis- disconnect between the parties that will not allow them to reach a collective agreement. So his take is this cannot be settled at the no- negotiating table. There's so many fundamental differences that you don't see in other labor disputes. So it basically raises the question, is there going to be a strike or job action at some point, uh, or will there be government intervention, or will, will there be both? And at what point will that actually happen? But right now we're just the education system is drifting along with the current contract in place, the teachers' union is unhappy, the employer is unhappy, and it's uh, headed towards some sort of climax. Again, whether it's an all-out strike or whether it's just a government-imposed bill, uh, nobody knows quite yet. All right, let's go to the mediator's report here then. What is the fundamental problem? They talked about a fundamental difference in opinion, but what are those? Well, the first thing he points out is that the the bargaining structure was changed by the NDP in the 1990s. In 1994, their analysis was that because teachers uh, bargained local contracts in each school district, that they had the effect of what's called whipsawing, that one school district would negotiate a, a, a unrealistically rich contract, and then other districts would use that contract to play off against their local school district and force them to sort of match that contract. And so the, the cost just kept going up and up and up because the locals would just sort of force another local to match their their contract, even though it might not be affordable in that particular school district. So the NDP switched to provincial bargaining, and according to Mr. Schaub, the the BCTF simply doesn't accept that structure. They still want as much stuff at the local bargaining table as as possible. And he points out there's been more than 50 meetings at the table. Uh, There's been 58 days of bargaining, 16 days of mediation, which is a heck of a lot of time to spend talking about a contract. Only three items have moved off the agenda, which he attributes largely to the TF's refusal to sort of embrace the provincial bargaining model. The other big problem, he says, is the insistence to somehow bring the education funding uh, into the the total system funding onto the bargaining table. And he points out, no, the government sets the funding um, amount in education because it has to balance that with the health care system, with the the spending on transportation, on on justice, on social services. There's only so much money. So it apportions a certain amount to the education system. But he says they keep trying to drive that issue back onto the bargaining table. And he says there's no place for that. That's not what bargaining does. You don't see the the hospital employees union go into bargaining and say, well, we want you to increase the health care budget by a billion dollars. Uh, that's just, but that seems to be happening right. at the BCTF table. So you, you combine those two things, and you can see why since 1987, there's only been one negotiated agreement with, uh, that's been done on their own without the intervention of either the government or a third party, uh, someone like Vince Reddy. So it's, it's quite a discouraging report, and there's no reason it's going to change for the better anytime soon. Those are two huge things, though, Keith, that you yeah. just described there. One, not accepting a, a provincial bargaining structure that has been in place for 20 years now, and two, wanting a say in how the provincial budget is spent? Well, this is Mr. Schaub's analysis. There's, he says there remains one major source of tension, the level of funding provided for K-12 K-12 was a question of funding running between all the parties. And he says, uh, it's, basically, they should have an interest uh, on the uh, the standard of living of those employed in the school system. That's fine. But to go beyond that is just not something you do in bargaining. So he, again, he combined those two things, not accepting the bargaining structure, um, or at least... Uh, you know, paralyzing it, and secondly, wanting to argue about the budget of the education system. You don't see that in other any other uh, jurisdiction in the public when it comes to negotiating contracts, and that's why historically I think we've had a breakdown every three or four years as these contracts come up and why it can't get done, and it needs either someone like Vince Reddy to block everybody in a room overnight until yeah. they come out with a deal, or it takes the government to impose a contract, as we've seen in the past. Okay, so what happens now, though? Have they even taken a strike vote at this point? No, they haven't, and the TF has signaled that it has no intention of doing that anytime soon. I think um, certainly t- one speculation is that we just continue on with the current contract right through to the end of this year, and that if there's anything dramatic to happen, probably next September, the start of the next school year, with the full expectation that John Horgan has already signaled he's got no patience for a long dispute in the in the bus uh, uh, dispute, the transit service. Right. You can believe if he's got little patience for a long dispute there, he won't have much patience for a prolonged school strike as well, because governments, after a while, start to wear that. The public gets 
very upset and demands action. So whatever happens, I suspect it's not going to be a long period of job action or strike. I think the government would be forced to step in uh, sooner than, than later if there's a full withdrawal of services. But as I say, there's no strike vote on the horizon. Right. We're just probably going to drift along for a while and it'll be status quo. Let's talk about that sort of as an, uh, a strategy, not having that strike vote. Because one thing that did work in the transit strike was they had a very big mandate when it came to that strike vote. So why wouldn't the Teachers Federation do that? I don't, well, they may, at some point I think they will do that. But I think, and they will deliver a strong strike vote. The BCTF always does. It's always in the 90s. It's going to be just like the bus drivers was, what, 99% or something. It'll be similar to uh, the teachers. Although I can tell you on social media, I get a lot of comments from teachers saying, I have no desire to go on strike yet again. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of teachers are out thousands of dollars for job action in the past, and they haven't got a lot to show for it in terms of what they were looking for at the bargaining table. But as, at some point, maybe there will be a, a strike vote of the membership. That will put some more pressure on the government. But given the fact that the NDP government right now is headed into some rocky shoals on when it comes to finances, as the economy starts to slow down, government revenues begin to shrink, uh, there's even less money to put on the table here. And in fact, there can be more money on the table because anything that goes to the TF that's substantially more than the 2% a year that's on the table uh, that every other union has signed for, then other unions would get whatever the TF gets, and that would just make a shaky financial situation even shakier for Carol James and the finance ministry. Do you get any sense from the government then that they are running out of patience with this thing? I think they're more frustrated, certainly talking to some ministers more frustration, uh, but also, I think, a knowledge of where this is headed uh, down the road. It's not going to be a nice thing to solve. They don't certainly like the prospect of, of imposing a contract, but I certainly get a lot of a sense of real frustration amongst the NDP cabinet that, that the, their, situa- their relationship with the BC Teachers Federation right now is practically zero. Uh, I think the TF thought the NDP was going to be somehow their, their partner in greatly increasing the education budget and their pay packets, and that's just not happening. So both sides feel frustrated with each other. And when that happens, uh, I think you're going to see a confrontation at some point. I can't help but notice that, as you were saying, you do debate this quite often with teachers (laughs) on social media. What is the sense that you get from teachers on this? I get the sense this time that there's less appetite for for job action. There is still frustration. The teachers are very passionate, obviously, for, mm-hmm. uh, rightly so, for their profession is a very important one, and they feel they feel wronged by the government. They think their pay levels, in particular, lag substantially behind the rest of the country. My experience has been I've yet to see a BC government. I don't care what political party it is that actually listens or pays much attention to provincial comparisons. I mean, provinces are on their own when it comes to public servants in terms of what, what they're paid. So that, that argument cuts no uh, ice with the NDP, and I think teachers are frustrated by that. But th- I think what the big problem is, they're locked into this mandate that extends to all public sector unions. And so basically everybody gets the same pay increase. The trouble with that is not everybody starts with the same wage. I mean, it varies depending on what your profession is or what particular part of the public sector you're employed in. And maybe that's the solution here is down the road. Divide the public sector into different sectors and not have just one mandate, one size fits all, because it's clearly not working in this case. Right. Okay. So what happens next? Is there any anything else happening? Any other negotiations? The mediator is still on the job. He hasn't booked out, as, as it's, it's called in labor parlance. Uh, so he's still there. There's, an, I think, an expectation there's going to be a resumption of some sort of communications between everybody in December. Everybody's taking a break right now, is my understanding, as they digest this, this mediator's report. But the BCTF was right from the start just rejected this out of hand, saying that they're just not going for this at all. Uh, the employer uh, basically didn't vote on it because they considered a moot point because the TF had already rejected it. Mm-hmm. But I think once everybody cools down a bit, there'll probably be a resumption of some sort of communications. Whether it's outright negotiations remains to be seen. But uh, as long as the mediator's still on the job, that's yeah. a... That's a, a, just a tiny bit of hope that's there. But as I say, when you read the report, there's not much hope, but uh, I think being expressed by the mediator. Well, we'll take that. Keith, thank you for right. your time. Take care. That's Keith Baldry, Global's uh, Legislative Bureau Chief over in Victoria there.